So, Will. Yes? In this week's movie, our main character... Our heroine? Our... mm, Might be going far. (laughs) Our main character, protagonist, stumbles into a job without planning it, without wanting it, or without even trying. She almost tumbles into it the way that she's tackled. She does the tackling. Yeah, I suppose. But I want to ask, do you have any experience stumbling your way into a job on accident or a movie in which your favorite character also finds themselves in a predicament? I mean, in movies, it always feels a little false. But I, I do have to say that my freshman year of college, I was trying to get a job on campus. And I interviewed for a job with this, like, old nun who worked in St. Mary's Hall, which is this building on the edge of campus that, like, nobody goes to except for nursing students. And I interviewed with this, like, very nice old nun, and I got, like, five minutes into the interview before she was like, you're too good for this job. (laughs) And then called over to another office and was like, are you still hiring? And then said, go over there, they'll give you a job. And I went over, and they gave me a job. That's so weird. And so you. It was also a little awkward because I then later met the very nice person who got that job. And I was like, apparently you were not too good for this job. That's such a weird thing to say to someone, too. I don't think that's exactly what she said, but that was the vibe. Okay, that's definitely a vibe you can get. Yeah. I did also, now that I think about it, kind of stumble into a babysitting job in college. Which was, a friend of mine did some babysitting in the neighborhood around campus. And one time my sophomore year, she like had to back out at the last minute. and asked if I could do it and I was like yeah sure whatever and it was for this like six-year-old boy and it was like a single dad liked me and I think the kid liked having a dude who would like play Legos with him or whatever and so that just became like a regular gig we're like once every six weeks I would go over like play with this kid for like an hour and a half then he would go to bed and I would play Xbox nice this was before I had Netflix myself so I would also just like fire up Netflix and I watched most of the first season of House of Cards while babysitting that's a pretty sweet gig to like it was pretty stumble great. into. Yeah, the dad would like come back a little buzzed, basically hand me whatever cash was in his wallet, and then I'd go get five guys. Wow. Good for you. It was awesome. I have a couple stories. You could kind of say that I stumbled into my work as a barista, which I think I've addressed on this podcast. I don't even before. have in my head that you stumbled into that, and we lived together. I was applying for any job that I thought I could get and leave within a, like, eight-month period. Sure. I don't know that- is that stumbling? I guess. Kind of. It's the closest I have, Will. Whatever, But then there is one time where I walked into the Museum of Natural History during a field trip for my son, and then they offered me the night guard position. Okay, he is not there on a field trip. He applies for a job. No, I think you're wrong. He applies for an open position at all. We did this movie on the podcast two years ago. That's why I remember it less than if I had just watched it on my own, Will. I had it on DVD growing up. I've seen it a couple of times. Catherine posted on Instagram about our Newsies episode, and it was like, come listen to me talk about Newsies and the Vatican, question mark. And I almost messaged her, when do we talk about the Vatican? Because I enter into a fugue state during recording, after which my brain flushes all memory. That's funny, because we are currently in a no-buffer period of this show, where episodes come out, like, five days after they're recorded. Yes, this was within a, like, three-day period. It was not our normal six-week 
time where I'm like, wow, I don't remember anything we said on that episode. Anyway, we talked about the Vatican newspaper, and we were discussing the papes and who might be distributing and reading them. And also just the concept of, like, people being Vatican citizens, like children. Right. I did eventually get there. Okay. Well, that's good. It's good for you to exercise your memory that way. Yes. I don't like it, but sometimes I feel like it must be done. Um, I don't know. I feel like it's hard to, like, stumble into a job unless you're, like, a model, an actress, or a nanny. This is the vibe I get. Even yours was babysitting. Right, exactly, which is, is pretty close. Or there's a nun involved. I'm currently reading Lauren Bacall's autobiography, and she basically becomes a model as a way to, like, fill time while trying to be an actor on Broadway. And eventually it took me, like, a few pages to realize when she was describing modeling that she is not getting pictures taken of her. She's doing, like, in The Women, where she just puts on the dress and then walks into the showroom when a lady requests to see the dress gets, like, poked and prodded, and the dress gets felt, and then she walks away, and the woman decides if she wants to buy it or not. And it's so weird. That's so weird. It's, like, the concept... When were mannequins invented? Like, they must have had mannequins. Well, I think for a while there was the issue of people were inventing mannequins, but they were coming to life and redoing the displays every night. Oh, my God. That's such an annoying part of having a mannequin. The problem is when your mannequin's on the move. Was that the sequel? (laughs) Yeah, Mannequin 2 on the move. One of the underrated sequel subtitles for making a joke about. Like, obviously, Electric Boogaloo has been done to death. 2X2Y has been done to death. I think Hypercube is a good one, and On the Move is probably underrated. On the Move's a good one, but I feel like it's not as easy to make anything into an On the Move joke. It requires a bit more thought. Sure, but, like, this episode's coming out the day after the Oscars, and, like, if we had our Best Picture nominees, and we had, like, Top Gun, on the move, Avatar, on the move, Everything Everywhere All at Once, on the move. Women Talking, on the move. That would be the sequel of that movie. That would be the sequel of that movie, as they are leaving the the um, colony. The Fableman's on the move describes a lot of that movie. These work. Wow. You're, you're not wrong. It makes more sense than electric boogalooing everything. Yeah. Two women, two moving. No, it'd be two women, two talking. <laughs> two women, two talking. That I two can L2 get on board Vis. with. Two, two L2 Vis doesn't work. Two Elvis L2 Hypercube Vis. works. <laughs> Elvis Hypercube. I want to see Elvis versus the Hypercube. I'm just saying, we as a society could get a little bit more creative here. I know nothing about the Hypercube. Neither do I, but it's a great title. It is a good title. It's the sequel to Cube, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah. So it's actually Hyper Elvis. No, it's Cube 2 colon Hypercube. No, it's not. I swear it is. Oh my god. Okay. I believe you, but also, come on. Anyway, what I'm saying is the Nanny Diaries on the move would work. The Nanny Diaries Hypercube also works. It sure does. Two Nanny, two Diaries doesn't work. Two Nannies, two Diaries could easily be the sequel to the Nanny Diaries. I mean, the book is written by two people who were both nannies. But it's more of a you've got mail situation where they're writing diaries to each other. Oh, that's sweet. Two nannies in love. So the Nanny Diaries. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to answering the least important question facing the world. Who is Mrs. X? We are not the first to discuss this because there is a whole New York Times article about it. 
Yeah, we're also talking about whether Hollywood romance is actually believable. And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, as we've said, we are looking at the 2007 childcare <laughs> adaptation, The Nanny Diaries, directed by Robert Pulsini and Sherry Spencer Berman. This movie was boring. <laughs> it's not what you would call good. <laughs> it's not what... I would not describe this movie as engaging. Some might call it fun. And they would be wrong. <laughs> Laura Linney's trying her best. Okay, Laura Linney's pretty good at this. Laura Linney is trying to hold it together. Famous tree American Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> Not so much. Proposition. Paul Giamatti is playing Harvey Weinstein in this movie. Yes. He looks a little like him. It's weird seeing Paul Giamatti without the beard. He's like hulking in a way that you never see. Especially because like... You know, 2000s Giamatti, you're thinking Sideways, you're thinking John Adams. He is this kind of, like, beast in this. He seems very large all the time, like, in a kind of physically dominating way. It's a very different performance for him. And it it feels like Harvey. Which is weird only because this movie is a Weinstein Company movie. Yeah. I don't know about Mr. X from the books, but in the movie it really does kind of feel that way. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't think about it, but you're not, you might be onto something. I think so. Wow. Yeah, Paul Giamatti in this. I don't like villain Paul Giamatti except for in the um, Malcolm in the Middle star's name is... Frankie Muniz. Frankie Muniz, Amanda Bynes, young okay. person comedy... Here's Mark, I'm going to tell you right now. Big fat liar. There is a sticky note on my desktop that just says big fat liar because you bring this movie up about every eight months on the show. Yeah, every time we talk about Paul Giamatti because it was a very formative experience in my relationship with Paul Giamatti. And I'm like, I got to watch this movie one day. So I just have this sticky note that's been on my desktop for like well over a year. You don't need to watch it. I feel like I do. It's also under 90 minutes. I'm not planning on watching it again. I remember everything I need to. But when you say villain Paul Giamatti is not your thing, you're saying you don't enjoy when he's introduced as the Rhino at the end of The Amazing Spider-Man 2? All I know about the Rhino comes from the Marvel Spider-Man video game. Okay, in that game, which I have not played because I do not have a PlayStation, is the Rhino, like, a big suit grafted onto a guy's body, or is it like a weird robot mech? I think it's like a guy with a suit grafted onto his body. Cool. That's what comics Rhino is is like. I need you right now to Google Paul Giamatti Rhino. He's like huge. Right, yeah. But the Amazing Spider-Man 2, the main villain is Jamie Foxx as Electro. And he's defeated. Gwen Stacy dies. And then it's very sad. But the last scene in the movie, Peter Parker is back as Spider-Man. And he saves a kid from Alexei Sitsevich, the Rhino, played by Paul Giamatti, doing a heck of an accent. This isn't the Rhino. I agree. The rhino is a big guy in a dumb gray suit. Yeah, and in the video game, you ride him. Like, cool. You know, when you jump on the giant villain back and, like, use him to punch other enemies? That's awesome. Um, Paul Giamatti doing a weird Russian accent in a mech suit is not what I would describe as the rhino. No, not at all. Do you have any other broad thoughts on the Nanny Diaries before we dive in? <sighs> it's a movie that's hard to form a strong opinion about because... There's just so little there. Yeah, this movie is just so meh. 
What do you think of the anthropology angle, which is something that's original to the movie? It's not in the book, but the framing device is that Scarlett Johansson was an anthropology major in college, and like that's her real passion. And so she does her sort of observation of the wealthy people of New York as though it's an anthropology field guide. It's like, I get it. It makes sense. It's like fairly cute. It's fairly cute. I mean, anthropology as a field has a very loaded history. Yes, which the movie kicks right off with, talking about child-rearing around the world, showing the exhibits at the Museum of Natural History. Yeah. God, those exhibits at that museum are still weird to look at. Yes. But, like, so you start off being, like, kind of dicey, but it is a little fun when it pivots to the different Manhattanites, which is the thing that the movie engages with sporadically throughout the rest of its runtime. I think they should have leaned in harder, maybe, to it. Yeah, that was kind of my feeling as well. Like, I, I kind of liked it and wish there was more of it if it was going to be a thing. In part two, because that's the device that justifies their narration, which is pretty sporadic. Like, at times, it's there's a lot of it, and at times, it's gone for a long time. Yeah, like, they go too long between them. You should add one in about the, like, anthropology of Nantucket and, like, these islanders leaving their home. Yeah. Because, like, ultimately, in the end, it's revealed that this whole framing device has been, like, an application essay. That she's turning her experience as a nanny into a pitch for grad school to study anthropology. And and I'd love to know more what that essay looks like. Yeah. I don't know. This movie is also just kind of weird in general. Like I said, it's based on the novel The Nanny Diaries by Emma McLaughlin and Nicola Krauss, who met as students at NYU in the, like, great books program there, which is largely an individual study program. Which is why they were only taking classes like two days a week and had time to nanny on the side. And were doing nannying on the Upper East Side. So this novel is inspired by their experiences. They insist that it is not specifically based on anybody. I would believe that. Yes. I think everyone, like, they just combined all the terrible parts of all of the people they worked for. Right, exactly. Which did not stop anybody, as you said earlier, from trying to track down who the ex-family that the character Nanny, Nanny's for, is. I shared with you the New York Times article that I'm posting on our social media, too, of a New York Times reporter, Alex Kaczynski, trying to find out who this person is and reporting on the feverish whispers trying to identify Mrs. X. And everyone's convinced they know, but they're like, but this doesn't describe her at all. And then I'm like, so it's probably not her. Yeah, the only person who's named in the article is Lisa Birnbach, who was a CBS correspondent who confirmed that Krauss worked for her and was the editor of a book called The Official Preppy Handbook in the 80s and at the time was married to a film producer. On a bonus feature on the DVD, the writers say that Harvey Weinstein offered a $100,000 reward for Mrs. X's identity. And the authors insist, like, yeah, nobody could collect that reward because there's not a single person. I mean, that's a great line if you can never prove who Mrs. X is because you never have to play. Um, I did like in that New York Times article, the person in the building who said that Alison Krauss, who grew up in a building on the Upper East Side, said that she was a snitch and that the co-op board should prohibit fictionalizing residents. Which is, like, no. <laughs> That's not how it works. Yes. But I love the idea of these, like, sort of angry elite New Yorkers. I do love the idea of that woman, like, barging in to the co-op board meeting. Yeah, and that's where, like, this book was very much a sensation when it came out among the class of people who have nannies. Like, oh my gosh, look at what they think of us, sort of thing. And 
the writers, McLaughlin and Krauss, talk a lot about it as trying to be like a satire of this kind of, of elite class, and especially the women of this elite class. And as far as the movie goes, I I get that, but I almost feel like it simultaneously is like kind of mean and also doesn't hit hard enough. Like the Laura Linney character, you don't really have any sense what's going on in her life. The movie takes time at the end to like yell at her for being a bad mom. And after being publicly shamed, she becomes a good mom. But like you imagine that most of these women like have something that they feel at least feel that they are doing. I guess it's her like benefits. Yeah. And then also the part of this movie that really rubbed me the wrong way, especially if it's conceiving itself as a satire of this whole culture is the fact that every other nanny that we encounter has an accent of some kind. And like one of them is Irish, for example, but like they are all pointedly othered in some way. And there are like one or two exchanges that acknowledge like most nannies are doing this as a long-term career that keeps them away from their families and things like that. But the movie always is very quickly like, yep, that exists. But by the way, let's go have some hijinks with Scarlett Johansson. And it's like, well, it feels like if we're really engaging with this culture, we should be following someone else. Right. It's like, it's the orange is the new black situation where at the beginning, the focus is more on Piper, but then they realize that the people that the story actually is more like about and who the carceral system impacts take more center stage in this movie it's just like oh this white woman with a middle class life is now a nanny who runs into people that are struggling let's focus on her but orange is the new black is an interesting comparison because that's also based on a book and so that first season that you're describing is effectively the equivalent of this movie where it's focused on the white character whose experience defines the book the difference is that show had multiple seasons in which to say like oh we should be engaging with these other people with the nanny diaries the movie is all there is right so yeah i don't know it also doesn't help that i don't i don't think scarlett johansson's that good all the time i don't think she is all the time i think she can be quite good she can be but she's not in this no i mean i i don't think she's given very good material. Like, I think it would be hard to be very good. She is kind of a cipher in this movie. You don't really know what she wants, in part because she doesn't know what she wants, but that doesn't feel all that compelling in this movie. In part because it doesn't feel like there's much of a world beyond her, right? There's her mom, who's played by Donna Murphy, who is like, yes, she's hiding from her, but also is, like, weirdly mean. Like, when Donna Murphy finds out that she's been nannying, she says, call me when this phase of your life is over. That's so cruel. And then the only other person she knows is Alicia Keys. And Alicia Keys' gay roommate, Nate Cordry, who's basically playing Brian the gay cop from 30 Rock. Right. So Scarlett Johansson doesn't really know what she wants. That's fine. It's not like she's surrounded by people who have interesting lives of their own. So there's not a whole lot to latch on to. It's... I can't figure out how to fix it. A lot of the reviews compare this movie to The Devil Wears Prada, which is the most recent, like, adaptation of a juicy fictionalization in New York society, or Sex in the City, the narration-heavy Life of New York thing. And I think what both of those things get that this doesn't is that their characters are kind of weird. Like, you think about the great Devil Wears Prada characters, Anne Hathaway, Emily Blunt, like... 
they're they're little weirdos. And like Sex in the City, they're all kind of weirdos in their own way. And nobody in this movie is really fleshed out enough to be strange. They're all it's just kind of a short movie, and yet it feels like I know nothing about any of the characters. Except I guess the little boy. It's almost like in trying to satirize an entire culture, they're like, well, this needs to apply to everybody. When, like, you know, we've talked about this before. Specificity is what gets you there. Yeah, just like trying to make Mrs. X as generic, the cheated on rich housewife as possible, instead of basing her on a believable person. And she even has, like, the best treatment in the series. It's just more boring. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, Linny kind of has the most to do, but she's a character who is just living her life, being cheated on by her husband, and some of that performance is really interesting. But again, it just, it does feel a little cheap that it turns out what she needed was to be publicly berated. I, I feel like, uh, and this might just also be a testament to Laura Linney as an actor, is I would rather watch the Mrs. X movie. Yeah. And like have her grow in more ways than a nanny yelling at her while drunk on a nanny cam. Yeah. What a weird movie. Um, The Nanny Diaries is written and directed by Sherry Springer Berman and Robert Pulsini, who are a married couple that were coming off of an adapted screenplay Oscar nomination for American Splendor, which starred Paul Giamatti as Harvey Pekar, the cartoonist behind American Splendor. This is the first narrative movie they made after that. And, you know, they've kind of never hit the highs again of that first movie. Probably their best-known movie since this is Girl Most Likely. And recently they've started directing TV. They directed a couple episodes of Succession, some other shows. You know, they're around, but they feel like one of those directors or director pairs who emerge with this really exciting work and never really tap into something that compelling again. It seems like directing TV is where the money is, though. Well, sure. (laughs) That's, like, where I'd want to end up. Well, you know, especially if you're coming out of independent film like they are, yeah, you're working to cobble together financing, whereas, you know, TV, you can get, you know, you shoot something in two weeks, you get a paycheck, there you go. Yeah, it seems great. Yeah. The movie, of course, stars Scarlett Johansson four years after Lost in Translation. We've also got Chris Evans the same year as Fantastic Four, Rise of the Silver Surfer, <laughs> a movie that I have not seen. He's also just boring in this. Well, he's not given anything to do. His job in this is to be handsome and vague. Yeah. Fair. I think that's partially taken, like, I haven't read the book, I'm not commenting on the book, but, like, part of what's salacious about the book is these anonymized names. You know, the fact that the main character is just named Nanny in the book. The fact that it's the X family, that it's Harvard Hottie. That's part of the appeal of the book, I imagine, because it feels like, oh, this is, this maybe feels like it's a real person and their name's been hidden. But in the movie, it almost feels like that has just turned them into... A type with nothing beyond that. Also, reading Mrs. X with capital X is much more impactful than hearing people say just like Mrs. X. Because when you hear it, it just kind of sounds like a name. Right. Anyway, um, audiences also did not appreciate The Nanny Diaries. It opened August 24th, 2007 in sixth place with $7 million. Ahead of it, uh, at number one, we had Superbad hanging on, The Born and Ultimatum, and Rush Hour 3. Wow, what a time. All of which were just hanging out from their previous weeks. Nanny Diaries opened last of the week's new releases. In number four, we had Mr. Bean's Holiday. (laughs) Number five, we had War. And number six, The Nanny Diaries, which ultimately grossed just $25 million at the domestic box office. It made another 20 overseas. It probably broke even or, like, 
maybe lost a little bit in its theatrical release, but it definitely made it up in terms of like DVD sales and cable. So like you know, back then it was hard for a movie to lose money. Yeah. The DVD market was so robust that like everything made it up eventually, unless it was a real calamity. Which I'm sure they did exist. Oh yeah, definitely. But you know, it was so much a different time in terms of the industry. That is very true. So many different revenue streams. But yeah, uh, people thought it was bad and they were right. And uh, it did show out of competition at the Venice Film Festival. Oh my god, of course. I just love the idea of the Venice crowd popping over one evening to check out the Nanny Diaries. Then, oh god. I don't think I know anyone that watched this movie. I feel like I it's a movie that I heard about, right? But I, I had never seen it. We watched this on a buck fifty DVD that I picked up at the record exchange in Silver Spring. Yeah. That Will then passed off to me and said, you can just get rid of this after. No, I said put it in a little free library, which is what I do with movies I don't want anymore. They always go. People always take them. I'm considering holding it on as a terrible gift for someone I hate. I mean, that's fine, too. So if one of you listeners ends up with a copy of The Nanny Diaries in the mail, you know why? <laughs> just bought a house. You could just, like, the first time you're over there, just leave it there. <laughs> As people start buying houses, I'm going to start just leaving framed pictures of myself in out-of-the-way places and see how long before they say anything. I like the idea of just, like, leaving junk. (laughs) Just, like, a thing nobody would want. (laughs) But something they might conceivably have. Right, no, like a statue of, like, like an orangutan or something. Just, like, you put it in the back of a slightly crowded table. Yeah. I need to pick a good picture of myself and get a $3 frame from the CVS so that I can just, like, sneak it out of my backpack behind a bunch of family photos. One of, uh, when Maura was, I think, a senior in high school, she and her friends did a white elephant, and one of her friends brought an autographed framed photo of himself. See? Good. Perfect for a white elephant. Yeah. The real move is to bring an autographed framed photo of someone else. But with your autograph on it? Well, you just, you know, you just... You know, forge it. Who knows their friend's autograph? Fair. Try and angle it so the person picks, like, the person who's pictured as picks that gift. Yeah. So, I don't know. I feel like we haven't talked that much about the Nanny Diaries, but there's not that much to talk about, right? It's such an empty movie. What's funny is that I was talking about this with my wife, who watched it with me, and she was like, oh, the anthropology thing. I said, yeah, not in the book. Anthropology's added, and the Donna Murphy character is added. Nanny doesn't have a mom who's a character in the book. Well, yeah, because it's supposed to be, like, anonymous. But the reason my wife was a little surprised the anthropology wasn't in was because in 2015, there was a book called Primates of Park Avenue, where, like, an honest-to-God anthropologist, like, somebody with a doctorate in anthropology, had moved to the Upper East Side and wrote a book from an anthropologist's perspective about the people who live in that area. I can get on board with doing anthropological analyses of what are generally considered to be the, like, baseline civilization. Yeah, that's cool and interesting. It's just funny that it comes out after this movie, and you wonder, you know, according to what I read on Wikipedia, she got started before the movie came out, but you wonder to what extent this movie, on some level, influences all of that. I did appreciate the movie's engagement with or at least acknowledgement of the idea that you can't fully study a culture that you're immersed in without affecting what you're watching. My wife has read this book and said that the author doesn't acknowledge that quite so much, but it sounds kind of interesting. Yeah, I just, I don't know. Anthropology always raises weird things in my brain, too. So that part I was, like, iffy on. 
it's a fun device that is bringing something different to the movie. Yeah. One thing is I think they should have just admitted like it's a movie and given the family names and then added in like a these are fake names thing. Something like in A View to a Kill where it starts off at the beginning of the movie with a disclaimer that none of the companies that are depicted should be taken to be based on real companies. Yeah. Or call the family Doe. Yeah, I know. Because it sounds like money too. I'm torn. Well, I like that pun. I'm torn about the X thing because I agree with you that in spoken dialogue, it just sounds like a name. But I think part of the appeal of this is the implied truthfulness of it, right? The implication that you're hearing real things that happened. And we aren't, right? This is a fictionalization, an amalgamation. But I think that if it didn't have that notion, it wouldn't be quite as compelling. Yeah. Because I guess otherwise... And frankly, this movie can't afford to give up any elements of compellingness that it has. Yeah. I think they should have cut the romance entirely and, like, spent more time developing her life. I feel like the romance should have been someone from her old life or something. That's a great idea. The romance is not doing this movie any favors, and I think that's probably a good pivot for us to talk about it. Yes. So every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points. As always, Will, can you take us to point one? Yeah, so our romance in this movie is between Annie the Nanny, played by Scarlett Johansson, and... Harvard Hottie. He might get a name in the movie. Harvey. Is that really his name? I think so. Oh, uh, according to Wikipedia, he's Hayden. Hayden. Ugh. Worse. Uh, Harvard Hottie, played by Chris Evans. And they meet after Annie has gotten the job as a nanny. He lives in the same building. Right. He lives in the same building that she lives and works in. And one time she is bringing the child Grayer home. A terrible name. Ugh. So bad. The first signal that these are bad parents is that the kid's name is Grayer. Grayer. She's bringing him home. He's being a little terror. He has pulled down her pants and run into the apartment and locked the door. And so she is trying to deal with everything. And she's got her pants pulled down. And suddenly, there's a Harvard hottie. Sorry, we're having a little bit of a situation here. (laughs) By the way, my name's... Since my job required a vow of chastity, it was essential that I avoided all intimacies, especially first names. For the purpose of this field diary, let's just call him Harvard Hottie. I'm the ex's new nanny. Very new, as you can probably tell. (sighs) Of course. Also, she trips, just to like remind you, she trips getting her diploma in high school. Yes. Or college. It's college. It's so dumb. My wife informed me that the type of underwear she is wearing is from Victoria's Secret's non-sexy line. It's not sexy underwear. It feels like the last time you would see Scarlett Johansson in a movie in underwear this not sexy. That is a good point. Like, I was really struck by that. Because even Black Widow is probably wearing, like, terrible lingerie. Yeah, well, I mean, especially in that character's early appearances, like in Iron Man 2 and in the first Whedon movie, part of her deal is that she's, like, distracting people with how sexy she is. True. My vivid memory of Scarlett Johansson in Iron Man 2 is that I saw Iron Man 2 with my friends, and then, like, a week later, we were back at the movies to see the Ridley Scott Robin Hood movie, and we were getting pop belly ahead of time, and the guy who was making our sandwiches asked if we were seeing Iron Man 2, and we were like, no, we saw that last week. And he was like, yeah, I'm gay, but I told my boyfriend if she came for me, I'd switch. Which I only remember because that's, like, one of the first times that someone, like, 
just casually referred to being gay to me, and it was not in a context that I would have expected. Yeah. Remember when we made Catherine watch Robin Hood 2018 again? Look, that movie, it's kind of fun. <laughs> so he sees her with her underwear out, holding onto a child's finger under the door. Yeah, uh, we find out that he lives upstairs. He seems to have a nice and friendly relationship with Grayer, so he helps her out and then goes onwards and upwards to his apartment. Never to be seen again. <gasps> but wait! But wait! Point number two is the 4th of July. As we all know, companies throw 4th of July parties at which only children and nannies wear costumes. This movie makes so little sense. I did think it was funny that the party was like, adults having a classy time, and then a floor below, it's children and nannies. Why would you force your nanny to dress up? Like, what a waste of money. That's true. They definitely spent a lot of money on this, like, is it a Betsy Ross costume, or is it just an American flag dress? I think it's just an American flag dress. Yeah, it is something. And then the bonnet looks terrible. Which it's definitely supposed to. Like, this is supposed to be a bad outfit. Yeah, because she runs into him again. I'm so sorry. He's not funny. I don't mean to be laughing. You look very patriotic. Let me hit your floor. Oh, no, it's okay. I got it. Didn't grow up with uh, the staff doing everything for me, so. Neither did I. Oh, you must have had it really rough then. Okay, well, I'm glad to give you a good laugh. She has to go back for something. What? A, oh, uh, Grayer carries a little, one of his dad's business cards, safety pinned to his clothes, because that's the only way he can be close to his dad. Depressing. Yes. And Grayer forgets his business card, so she has to go back for it. And in the elevator, she runs into Chris Evans, and she's like, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. Much less embarrassing. Yeah, honestly. Because she could just be like, it's the 4th of July. It's an ugly costume. It's not ugly clothes. It's also clearly on theme for the day. Yeah. But anyway, she makes kind of a snotty comment about how she grew up without a staff. At that point, he makes a weird comment about how he also grew up without a staff. As far as I can tell, this is crap. This is wrong because he grew up with a bunch of nannies. Right, we're later told that he was raised by a succession of nine nannies. And it's like, well, earlier in the movie, you were kind of implying that you did not come from this world and that you've just, like, stumbled in. And I was trying to figure out, like, are you, like, house-sitting for someone or something? I thought it was going to be a pulled myself up by my own bootstraps thing. But nope, he grew up in this building and is just lying here, I guess? I don't, I don't get it. So, uh, that's that. First time they meet... He's helpful. Second time, he's a liar? He's weird. He's so unfleshed out. There is nothing to him. But we meet him again, like, a while later. In point number three, Scarlett Johansson finally gets a night off to join her good friend Alicia Keys at the bar. Oh my god. And she realizes that Harvard Hottie is there with who we learn are his high school friends, the biggest bunch of douchebags to ever appear in a movie. It's like... They said, we can do one better over Devil Wears Prada in one thing, and that's Terrible Friends. Oh, I mean, there are so many degrees worse than the Devil Wears Prada Friends. Dude, it tells you knew a nanny. That is so porno. Are the moms hot? Guys. Are you hot for the dads? Are the dads hot for you? Hey, come on. You want to know about the dads? I'll tell you about the dads. 
They're chubby, bald, steak-eating, cigar-smoking type A pigs who get more turned on by the Bloomberg wire than they do by any hot nannies. Actually, it's all of you in about five years, so take it from me, guys. Enjoy tonight because your future looks pretty fucking bleak. At first, when he notices her, he, like, invites them over, which is a fairly nice thing to do. And she's like, oh, yeah, like, I know him from work. And they keep pushing what work, what work, what work. And finally, she says she's a nanny. At which point, his friends announced that that is so porno. Ugh, it was so bad. It's horrific. I'm glad she gives the, like, monologue, I guess. Yeah, she yells at them, and they deserve it. Yeah, I couldn't think of the word. Diatribe. Yeah. She gets too just, like, yelling at people. But that's another thing where, like... Harvard Hottie is deeply called into question because you're like, why is he hanging out with these guys? How old is he supposed to be? I guess they're all 21. I feel like right out of college, hanging out with your douchebag high school friends is a thing. And then this is going to be like the moment he realizes he should stop being friends with them. That's possible. He is at youngest the summer between undergrad and law school. Yeah. So I kind of believe that. Like, okay. this will probably be that, like, moment where he's like, oh, wait, maybe I should stop being friends with them. I could imagine that because he is clearly mortified and, like, calls to apologize. He wants to take her out to make it up to her. And at this point, like, I don't even necessarily take this as him, like, trying to get her to go on a date. Like, he feels more just, like, mortified. Like, please let me apologize to you for real. Right. He, like, sends her roses to apologize. He eventually, like, comes to the door and is like, you you have to let me do this. Yeah, because he's. it is kind of funny that he's just, like, so embarrassed. Well, I would be, too. I would be, yeah. But someone who is this embarrassed probably wouldn't be, fr- like, would have realized it earlier, but oh well. Yeah, whatever. Point number four. They go out and start hanging out. They make arrangements to, like, go get dinner, but she's late because she has to have a meeting with James Urbaniak. It's so weird. They bring in a counselor because he doesn't get into, like, the collegiate school or whatever. Yeah, the the fancy (laughs) elementary school they want him to go to. So weird. And so she's late, so they, like, get slices on the steps of the museum instead. I enjoy exploring my city. Something you should probably do more of. Mm. Thank you. I'll try to squeeze that in between cleaning up Greer's vomit and picking up Mrs. X's laundry. Come on, if your job is that bad, why don't you just quit? I mean, it's not like you're on a career path here. I don't understand. No, of course you don't understand. You've obviously lived a very charmed life. Growing up on Fifth Avenue, you went to Harvard. A charmed life. (laughs) Okay, now I get it. You know, for your information, my mother died when I was four. My father traveled constantly for work. I was raised by nine different nannies until I was old enough to get shipped off to boarding school. That's how charmed my life was. He tells her his whole sad story about how he was raised by nannies. But then, like, we really get his role in this movie, which is not to be a character. His role is to insist that she should quit her job. Yes, because, you know, Alicia Keys wasn't doing enough. I mean, Alicia Keys wasn't really pushing her... At quite as explicitly. Alicia Keys is like, why are you doing this? He's like, you should not do this. Yeah, that's fair. And she's like, no, I, I have to take care of Grayer. I have to take care of this boy whose parents saddled him with a horrible name. Yeah, and she does say, I love you to him, she does, which, which is, is bad. Obviously a huge mistake. You know, in the sequel book, which comes out in 2010. My God. Nanny and Harvard Hottie have gotten married, lived abroad for a couple of years, and they've just returned to New York. And... 
a drunk 16-year-old grayer comes knocking at their door demanding to know why he was abandoned by her. And that's the inciting incident. That's kind of interesting. That's, like, a, not a terrible concept, to be honest. The I, Like, investigating what happens if a nanny does cross a line. So, Harvard Hottie is pushing her to quit. She is ho-humming because she's with Nanny. He wants to kiss her. He's, you know, really pushing for that. She eventually goes up to stay with him. And this sexual experience basically changes her life because after having sex with him, she's like, yeah, I should quit. Sometimes you just need that post-nut clarity. (laughs) I was about to say the same thing. I hate that I said it. Keeping it in. (laughs) But it's true. What I did think was very funny is at this point, He's trying to convince her, like, yeah, you've got to get away and just, like, take time away from these people who are consuming your life. And he says, come with me to the Hamptons while I try to decide whether law school is really for me. We can just have the house to ourselves, which is literally the plot of Mystic Pizza. Oh, my God, it is. Julia Roberts goes with her law school boyfriend who says he is deciding whether or not he wants to stay in law school. Wow. I didn't even think about that. But she's not able to go with him because instead... She goes with the family to Nantucket, and Laura Linney doesn't pass on any of his phone messages when he calls. Because she's mad, because Grayer likes the nanny more than her. And, you know, maybe she should think about how to improve that situation, like getting publicly berated by a drunk 21-year-old. Oh my god. I mean, she needed the wake-up call, but not the way to do it. Yeah, and again, I just think, I think she needed a wake-up call. I'm troubled by the fact that the movie seems to think this is the best way to do this. Yeah, that's also true. But, oh my god, the nanny sessions are so horrifying. Yes. Uh, anyway, point number five. The end of the movie, I guess they are together. Hey. Hayden. Oh, that's right. I forgot to mention his name is Hayden. And once I finally let myself say it, it was a habit that was pretty hard to break. It is, uh, it's going pretty good, actually. There's more scholarships out there than I thought, so. Why are you so late? because I have something for you. It's from your former employer. What? She cornered me on the 12th floor. Figured I could get to you before she could. She decides to go to grad school to study anthropology, and she is hanging out with Harvard Hottie, who wears some pretty terrible cargo pants. Yeah, and then the movie's over. It sure is. So, Mark, what do you think? Is this romance believable? It's barely there. It's barely there. I think the least believable thing is the notion that they are together at the end of the movie. Because I do kind of get that, like, in this building of, like, harumphing society people, two hot young people might just be like, yeah, we should hang out this summer. Yeah, I get that. And then I get being so embarrassed by his friends that he wants to apologize. Right. The issue to me is that they seem interested in each other in the long term because there is nothing to either of them. But maybe boring people deserve each other. I mean, that's true. Because if they're not bored with each other, then they're not boring other people. They're saving two other people. Yeah. Where would you rate this on a 10-point scale? I don't know, man. What do you think? I have no idea. I'm considering just calling it a 5 straight down the middle. I was about to do the same thing. Great. Do you think either of them is dateable? I think we've made it pretty clear. They're not. They stink. Maybe. I think Harvard Hottie has a better chance at becoming dateable than Annie does. Yeah. He could turn it around, but he's just like a blank slate. Like, kind of on purpose, but it just fails. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Do you think they're going to stay together? I say no. I say no. 
Yeah. I think she will find someone new in grad school. And I think he will wander aimlessly, cushioned by money. But he didn't grow up surrounded by wealth, you know. Uh, he did, though. <laughs> he did! He's a liar! Oh my god. Mark, if you had to pick one person in the Nanny Diaries to date, whom would you choose? Um, I mean, probably the game roommate. He seems fun and willing to go along with a charade for the drama. I was also gonna say Nate Cordry, because, like, as much as I want to say Donna Murphy, she's, like, weirdly mean. She's just so mean. For no reason. From the start. Yeah, so Nate Cordry. Last question, Mark. Should the Nanny Diaries be adapted into a Broadway musical? No. <laughs> it's boring enough as a movie. I can't imagine it on stage. Are, are you sure, though? Oh my god, are you going to say it has been adapted? No, I'm not. Around oh, the time the god. movie came out, Donna Murphy did say, like, we could do a musical, that would be fun. I like to sing. <laughs> I mean, she's just looking to get on the stage. Because it's what she does. No, uh, there should not be a Nanny Diaries musical. Although... I wonder if this might be better served that way. You know, the vignettiness of the anthropology framing might lend itself well to some fun songs because you could do different songs in different musical styles. There might be something there. I mean, the thing is, it's like you can take a, any idea and probably make a good thing, product out of it if you're talented enough. Should it exist, though? Probably not. Well, okay. I suppose you're right about that. All right. Well, I think that does it for The Nanny Diaries, a movie we have seen. A movie that we have seen, and we'll leave it at that. Next week, we're covering a movie that we have also seen already and recorded the episode, and I'm very excited to discuss it. Like the Nanny Diaries, a flop, (laughs) but on a much bigger scale. We're talking about Disney's John Carter, the Warlord of Mars. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help other people find the show. All right, Will. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from the Nanny Diaries? You should be with someone who likes you even when you're wearing your worst underwear. Oh, that's actually cute advice. Um, my advice is if your friends are dicks to someone, apologize. That is good advice. Don't just try and brush it under the rug. Make a genuine effort. All right, there you go. Uh, Until next time, I'm a ginger. (laughs) And I'm gay. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye.